calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and welcome to this episode of Take 15. I'm Lauren Foster, Content Director at CFA Institute. And joining me today to talk about emerging markets is Dr. Martin Davies. Uh, Martin is the Managing Director of Emerging Markets and Africa at Deloitte Frontier Advisory. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. You joked earlier about the negative sentiment on emerging markets and whether the group should be renamed the submerging markets. Is there too much pessimism around emerging markets? I think there is, unless uh, it's been characterized by pessimism arguably the last three years or so. But uh, to an extent, emerging markets, as we generally call them, have been living on borrowed time. If you're looking at sort of the, the, the quantitative easing out of the US, the, 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 the very positive impact that it had on emerging market economies from capital flows moving into, into, into EMs to the tune of, at its peak, $85 billion a month. That started to taper in sort of May 2013. And by the end of 2015, thereabouts, that uh, all that money had, uh, was no longer available. Secondly, on the China side, is China's uh, rebalancing or recalibration of growth, rather, away from over-investment-driven, very resource-intensive, infrastructure-driven, infrastructure-build-driven economy uh, towards more services has also taken emerging markets by surprise as well. And both these factors, almost coinciding, as uh, coming to an end, has exposed the, the structural flaws of, of emerging market economies. And now I'm afraid we have to work to grow. Some will figure it out and, and maybe some won't. You spent a lot of time today talking about the coming demand shock for some emerging markets. Can you briefly give us some of the key takeaways of that? I think the key thing here is that, the important thing is that a number of emerging markets, uh, China, led by China, and many in that sort of, uh, you know, the, 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 the Asia Pacific region, and including, dare I say, East Africa region, are still having very robust, strong growth rates. And you're seeing low commodity prices, low oil prices in particular, are a tailwind to growth, supporting growth. Think India. Uh, reduced, significantly reduced or arguably normalized oil prices, a very positive um, tailwind for, for Indian growth and hence the Indian growth rate we're seeing now, which is, which is very strong. So when you're looking at the, I think the center of gravity of growth uh, globally has rapidly shifted eastwards um, and again shifted away from oil propelled economies previously. Think Brazil, think Russia, uh, think Nigeria, think Angola and obviously think economies here in the, in the Middle East as well. So um, when demand shock, I mean, China continues to grow, it continues to create very significant numbers of, of emerging, emerging consumers, uh, soon to become baked in middle class consumers. And this is predominantly coming out of China, it's coming out of India, it's coming out, in, out of Indonesia, and to an extent, it's coming out of East Africa as well. It's starting to come out of East Africa. Think Kenya, uh, think Ethiopia is a medium long-term play, Tanzania, Mozambique, long-term plays. These are frontier markets, but are arguably have far better fundamentals in place for long-term growth trajectories than traditionally resource-only uh, resource uh, or arguably single resource-driven economies have in the past. 
We know that global emerging markets have faced significant headwinds over the last few years, primarily as a result of the slowdown in China, but also the slump in commodity prices. Now, you've done a lot of research on the relationship between China and Africa. Are African economies too reliant on China? Well, they have been. Uh, I think, again, with, with uh, the mega trend of the African continent, last decade and a half, thereabouts, has been China's engagement. Now, I'd break it down to a supply side and a demand side. The supply side, which gets all the headline news, is China's supply of sovereign capital into China through its so-called policy banks, China Exim Bank, China Development Bank. And that makes the headline news, the big ticket items, the big infrastructure investments, the big pledges, the loans to governments, etc. I think that's less important to the, uh, the not, should we say, the geopolitical capital, but the more the, the demand side of the relationship has been significantly more enabling for African growth. And this is the demand side for resources. And the inflationary impact that China's resource-intensive growth model, which is unprecedented, I would argue, economic history, has had on solid commodity prices, particularly most beneficial to solid commodity exporting countries. Think South Africa, think Zambia, think Congo, amongst many others. And obviously oil has played a part there as well. Uh, China's played a part in oil markets to an extent. So, so China certainly, China's resource-intensive growth model has certainly underpinned uh, African being general, African growth the last decade and a half or so. But clearly now that is that is now turned. If we stick with commodities for a little bit, um, what needs to happen uh, for emerging markets to divorce themselves uh, from moves in commodities and simple you know, price fluctuations in their currencies? Mm, uh, it's easier said than done. And we, we hear phrases, we heard it today, phrases like we need for greater policy agility. Uh, diversification is a key word, but this is not a short-term play at all. We've been hearing in our part of the world, in South Africa and the region, diversification for the last 20, 30 years. And unfortunately, many governments only put in place the policies necessary for diversification. Diversification is not really a policy, as it is, I would argue, as it so much is a uh, people-driven initiative. How do you attract the talent, the, the IP into your system that you want to ultimately become an economy that's not driven by resources, but one driven by ideas. And the most successful emerging economies, or what didn't start off as emerging economies in the last 50 years, have been, or 40 years, have been Asian economies, all of which are generally resource poor, ideas driven, intellectual property driven, talent driven, not resource driven. So when countries, and I see many of them, put the barriers up, uh, to human uh, capital flow, to talent flow, visas required um, for, for you know, even qualified people coming in on short, short work stints, never mind sort of you know, immigrating or residing in that country. I'm afraid that does not support a, an aspirational diversification um, policy uh, or intent. Also, there's almost an ideological... Um, sort of motivation behind words like beneficiation, where we need to beneficiate resources. Countries like um, Japan do not get become one of the world's greatest economies, of the world leading multinationals, by beneficiating, I don't know, rice. It didn't happen. How does Japan have one of the world's most competitive steel industries, but to no iron ore? Australia has no iron ore, uh, no steel sector by and large but has plenty of deposits of iron ore. And you look at all these cases, it's resources, I would argue, and this is maybe counterintuitive to most, resources confer no competitive advantage in an economy long term. 
and the Asia case, the Asia experience in the last three, four decades, countries where I used to live in Taiwan and Korea and China, Singapore, these places have proven that to be fact. I've heard you say that the story of emerging markets is actually three stories. It's a China story, a significantly inflated commodity prices story, and a governance story. What is the story or the stories of the emerging markets going forward? I think the story going forward is, again, uh, an analogy I have here is the crisis, what started off as a financial crisis, which soon, very soon, became very rapidly became an economic crisis, a sovereign crisis in Asia in the late 90s. What are the lessons there? For Asia to graduate from that level of development, the political economy, if you use of a better phrase, had to become more efficient. Rent-seeking had to be cut. It needed to, capital, talent needed to be attracted in a way that um, business could be done in, in uh, more, more fluidly, if you will. I think the situation we have now is not too dissimilar. For countries that held, past tense, so much promise, countries like Russia, countries like Brazil, arguably countries like South Africa, need to fundamentally reform themselves. Call it structural, call it political, call it governance, whatever it may be, all of the above, in order to be able to graduate to the next phase or trajectory of growth. And what you said now is very important, is the EM story, the emerging market story, I would argue is ultimately a governance story. And I'm afraid the, the, the low or normalized commodity prices now have merely exposed those governance weaknesses of these countries. Those need to be corrected for long-term growth. If they are not corrected, I'm afraid, we will see prolonged periods of stagnation, perhaps or relative decline, in these countries I mentioned for the foreseeable future. So it's somewhat of a follow-up question. If the commodity slump continues over several more years, um, how should investors think about emerging markets uh, that might differ from the past and how they thought about emerging markets? Well, I think, I think in many emerging market cases, again, high, high overinflated commodity prices, particularly oil, especially oil, resulted in, a, in almost a fear of missing out effect by investors, where people had to get in no matter what the price in any sector. Um, that's not sustainable and was not very smart long term. I think ultimately it's, it's uh, governments uh, which are seeking that capital, uh, seeking that investment. Governments need to correct. Economies need to reprice. Unfortunately, oil distorts economics. Oil distorts pricing very often. Uh, almost in, a, in, a, in my part of the world, again, Angola, Nigeria, Exhibit A, amongst many others. It distorts price in the economy, classic Dutch disease scenario, hollows out industry, renders other parts of the economy non-competitive. And ultimately, the state and politicians get distracted by the commodities and start to believe that they have created this enabling environment for long-term growth, which clearly they haven't. So again, it comes to, if there's, only, if there's one priority, but it's reform, it's reform, it's reform. And we need to see uh, governments becoming far more, um, far more agile to attract real sustainable capital into their, into their countries. There's a competition, uh, a far more competitive space for capital and talent. They need to let it flow. So I guess in closing, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what's the story that gets you most excited? Is there a particular region or a country or a sector that you think is going to be the driving story? Um, I know you spoke a bit about the services sector in your, your, your presentation. Can you expand on that a little bit? Like the long-term story for me is, uh, again, uh, as mentioned, is the the center of gravity of growth for middle class creation generation has shifted eastwards. 
So predominantly driven by likes of the Chinese, but close to this part of the world, the Middle East, looking at the Indias uh, and the East Africa. So this rise of the Indian Ocean Rim economy, um, adding significantly more middle class consumers and baked in middle class, not sort of the superficial middle class as many many would, 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 would hope exists in, in many frontier emerging market economies. So and the story for me is services, really. It's, it's, I'm from a bullish on, on resource poor economies, but I'm on resource rich traditionally. And, and as mentioned, resources confer, I would argue, no competitive long-term advantage in the economy. So as middle class, uh, as middle classes grow, the spend is significant, consumer spend is on the services like education, like healthcare and the like. And those are the sectors for me. Not so much a country story, the regions are there undoubtedly, but it's more of a services sectoral story for me that, uh, that, is, uh, that, that gets me more excited for the, uh, the long term. That's a great insight, Martin. Thank you for joining us and thank you for watching. Copyright 2016 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.